0: everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTXUS. FTXUS, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. FTX has also recently announced their Stocks Beta rolling out to U.S. customers to enable crypto, stocks, and NFT trading in one interface. This includes hundreds of U.S. exchange-listed securities, including common stocks and ETFs, and an integrated experience within the existing FTX U.S. cryptocurrency trading application. Use promo code BLOCKWARE1 or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's Blockware One, or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Now let's get into the show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today we have Max and Stacy, who both need no introduction. Thank you both so much for taking the time to come on the show. Been really looking forward to this one.
1: Good to meet you, yeah. William. Yeah, it's great, William. Great to see you.
0: And we've been going back and forth a little bit on Twitter, but it's finally nice to to chat. So uh, there's there's no shortage of things to talk about. I kind of want to start first with um, before diving into kind of like current events. I want to back way up and talk about your your early days in markets before you even got into Bitcoin, and what were those some early experiences in markets that kind of made you realize the you know how corrupt the current fiat system was.
1: Okay, I guess I'll dive in there. So uh you know i started on wall street in 1982 and that was my first job out of college i was in new york and um, the stock market had been through a 16-year bear market so things were dire and then suddenly the bull market started and in on, on wall street it's uh, very very creative um you know particularly in the early 80s it's uh, extraordinarily easy to do a lot of uh, nefarious things. Uh, you can hide trades, you can, you can rebook trades, you can um, what we call uh, look back trading, which is uh, kind of uh, parking stock in, in, in one account and, and taking advantage of different things. So, uh, and there was also, Mike Milken was around, and the Drexel Burnham Lambert, and the Junk Bond Kings were there, and the LBOs, and the hostile raids. And it was hugely exciting in New York at that time. and But it, it's obvious that the whole business is very, uh, it's built, it, it's very plastic, it's very elastic. There's very little that goes on that's legitimate, I would say. Um, in, in, a, in a brokerage firm at that time, and it hasn't really changed all that much. So um, that then in, in the 90s, I, I created the Hollywood Stock Exchange. I invented a, a virtual currency, and I have a patent on a virtual currency and a virtual trading system. So it got me involved into digital and virtual currencies. And, uh, you know, right up to, to, to Bitcoin in 2011 when we started buying it at a dollar. It's kind of a continuation of my experience on both Wall Street and with the virtual currencies. But um, throughout the whole time, you know, there's, there's, there's a common theme of, uh, uh, of uh, underlying laxity in enforcing the rules and regulations for securities industry, and sometimes this comically blows up, like with Enron, was an incredible, like, eighty billion dollar evaporation, just built entirely on fraud. Uh, WorldCom at that time. Uh, going back earlier, we had the uh, savings and loan crisis back in the '80s. That was a big fraud. You had, I mean, there's just dozens and dozens of frauds, and you become something of a connoisseur. Uh, kind of of financial fraud uh, you know Bernie Madoff is one of many 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 frauds and um, they all have a slightly different tinge to them in in the crypto market as it's called you see a replay of all these Wall Street scams being replayed in the crypto market um, really that the, they're not the, the these these Ponzi schemes that we see in the crypto market they're not new I mean they've we've seen them on Wall Street from for years and years and a matter of fact they're being now perpetrated by Wall Street guys so Wall Street guys who are mm. doing underhanded things on Wall Street just took all that and applied it to crypto uh, and they're doing some scams in crypto and regulators are really weak on Wall Street and they're really weak in crypto and um, so I've always been an observer of this and uh, Certainly in the 80s when I was a stockbroker, you know, I've participated in a lot of different things that were probably not completely above board. And uh, but that that's kind of the nature of that industry. Uh, It's it's difficult to be. It's like uh, they would say on Wall Street, if you're not getting sued, you're not trying hard enough. You know, that would be a common mantra you would hear from the management of these of these uh, brokerage firms. So so that's kind of the history of it.
2: I'll say, uh, in terms of my experience, I wasn't a banker or a broker like Max, but I, did, um, I was involved in the foreign exchange market um, unwittingly. Like I didn't, know. I was in the film business and I started working for Capital Films in London. And what we did is we would sell films. We were f- film sales agency. We would sell Hollywood films. So say Disney or Paramount would make a movie. They would retain the US box office Income for themselves. They would, sell, they would give it to us to sell to Germany, Japan, Italy, you know, Latin America was often one region. And um, then we would collect the money, keep 10% and send the rest back to them. Now, all of our contracts, and we had contracts all over the world, were in US dollar. So these countries would pay us in US dollars. I happened to um, enter this field at a unique moment in history, which was the late 90s. We had deals with Russia, the Russian ruble collapsed. We had deals with Asia, the Asian financial crisis happened. Uh, Italy at that time kept on going through a whole bunch of different governments and they would devalue their lira over and over, like every few months we had an Italian desk to renegotiate those contracts with them. But one thing I observed was, well, to me, it seemed like a very highly volatile situation with the global currency markets. Um, at that time, that was all I knew. But now looking back, I see it was a unique time, a very, very extremely volatile time. Um, one thing that always happened is we were the creditor, they were the debtor, and they always had in a, you know, in an actual business without government getting into the uh, relationship, they always won. So they would, you know, the Italians would call us and say uh, the lira crashed by 30% or the the government devalued it by 30%. The Russians, the ruble collapsed by like 80%. And they would be like, we can't pay you the $100,000, let's say that we owe you, we could only pay you 20,000. And there was nothing we could do. We would just have to say, okay. Um, So then when the financial crisis happened in 2008 and Ireland or Greece, or Cyprus, were made to pay out 100%. There was no negotiation with the uh, creditors on that situation. The whole situation was flipped, and you could see what the government had uh, stepped in in a fraudulent way. That would never have happened in business. The, the, the bondholders would have lost, but they made the bondholders whole. And so I could just, from my own experience, observe at that time, like, wow, like, I wish we had this sort of power to get all the money back that we were supposed to be owed, but we had to uh, accept less because of the crisis.
0: I'm sure someone's asked you guys this before, and maybe I just haven't heard it, but what was like the origin story of how you found Bitcoin? Did you just stumble across the white paper? I mean, obviously... You understand this huge issue, and as through everything that you just described, and then what led you to finding the solution?
1: Well, so uh, <laughs> we were doing Kai's report back in 2011, and Stacy said, "Hey, I booked the guest on the show, John Matonis from Hushmail, and he's going to talk about Bitcoin, something called Bitcoin." And that was in 2011, and John Matonis came on, and uh, my first question was, "Okay, what is Bitcoin?" and um, that was how we got introduced to it i immediately saw it was similar to what i'd been working on with the digital currencies so i got interested right away and um, that's how we got started
2: yeah it's funny because i was looking through my emails to see when was the the first time i ever mentioned in an email uh, bitcoin and i found an email from like late 2009 we were living in paris and making our show in paris at the time late 2009 early 2010 i can't remember when it was but it was early, and it said to me, um, hey, there are some of us from uh, Bitcoiners, I forget how they used it, but they said we're, we're Bitcoiners and we're in Paris if you want to join us. I never responded because I didn't know what the heck that was. And I would receive emails all the time anyway from all over the world. And it was just like I would just ignore them because I didn't know who these people were. This was before social media. So this was in, yeah, like it, it wasn't like Twitter was well developed or anything at that point. So we, uh, I never responded to that. And then John Matonis wrote to us, I think it was like December of 2010, to say he was gonna be in Paris in a few months uh, and, or a few weeks and he wanted to uh, be on the show and talk about Bitcoin. So when I told Max, I said, I have this guest. I said, he has something, it's called Bitcoin. I guess it's like the Hollywood dollar that you had on the Hollywood stock exchange, like a virtual currency. Um, and then you can see in that first interview that uh, so yeah, Bitcoin, I think it was like a dollar and then it like shot up because we covered it to like $3 and then, uh, <laughs> you know, it rallied like 200%. Um, but you could see in the interview that Max is like understanding that, wait, this isn't like uh, the Hollywood dollar. And within a month on our show back in 2011, Max was calling it the currency of the resistance
0: that's, that's super interesting. I I personally never heard that story before. I want to go ahead and, and tie this into kind of current events. Obviously, right now, uh, the Bitcoin market has seen, you know, 50, 60% drawdown, which is nothing but a thing for anyone like you guys who have been in the market for a long time. I will say, you know, it seems like for someone who's been in the market as long as you, This current drawdown must be much easier to stomach than, let's say, the early 90% drawdowns back in like 2013, for example, with like Mt. Gox, you know, collapsing. Walk us through, how do you get through these significant drawdowns? Is it just having, you know, uh, a significant amount of conviction through education about the asset? You know, obviously in the early days, you must have really gotten your conviction tested when you know there's been no historical you know psych, quote unquote cycles before you have the main exchange that exists out there just completely collapsing. I mean, how how did how did you kind of get through those those early bear markets and tying that into current events? How would you compare the current drawdown that we have now to those?
1: Yeah, well, the this is I think the one of the bigger drawdowns we've had. I think 85 percent drawdowns you know we had from 30 back to a $1, dollar 1200 back to 200 20,000 down to 3800 now 70,000 down to 30,000 and at this particular juncture on this particular one I don't really think about it at all we're just different than the early ones so the early ones um because as Stacy points out that the main developing crew, the core developers of Bitcoin themselves were in revolt and they were talking about hard forking and the big blockers, which wasn't resolved until 2017. But the, those types of issues were already being discussed and those would be existential threats to the success of Bitcoin. So the downside was more palpable. The, the risk reward on Bitcoin right now is one of the most favorable ever. Um, you know, in terms, you don't really have that level of um, core contention that would that would be a risk vector, you know, uh, you just don't have it. So um, at the moment, it's become almost a mature asset class, if you can believe it. But I mean, it's, it's getting closer to being certainly an established asset class, and you have an established group of people owning it. And I would say, you know, this this question comes up um, and the answer is that if you're if you're buying Bitcoin based on price, then You're not really, you know, you're missing the big picture. So when you buy Bitcoin is because you love Bitcoin. I give you I give you like this little scenario. Let's say you go to a flea market and you see a Van Gogh is on sale at the flea market and it's priced at $5. So, and you know with certainty that it's a $100 million Van Gogh. So now there's three options here. You can, A, you can go to the owner of the flea market and complain and say, this is outrageous. That Van Gogh is a 100000000 million. You're selling it for 5 And you can complain. Number two, you can be certain it's a Van Gogh, but you don't even want to put up $5 to own it. You don't have, you're just not that, you're, you're just not even going to risk $5. You're just, you're not going to do it. Number three is you're going to buy that Van Gogh for $5 and you'll be very happy you did. So let's play this out, Bitcoin. The first scenario you've got right now, Bitcoin's at 30,000. It's worth, you know, 10, 20 million dollars a coin at some point. So you got a lot of people that would complain about this. Like the Christine Lagarde of the world or the Nurio Rubinis. They go to the, the, the regulators or whomever, the press, they say they complain. Like, look, this asset, I'm gonna complain about it. It's worth millions. But, you know, it's selling for thirty thousand and they just complain and they talk about it. Then the second group you have, oh, it's at thirty thousand, it's worth millions, but they just don't they're not gonna bother buying it at thirty thousand. That would be your Peter Schiffs of the world, who I told to buy Bitcoin when it was a dollar and five dollars and ten dollars and fifty dollars. But it even though the case was clear that it's a new asset class and it could be worth millions, he didn't even want to put up five dollars. So that's the Peter Schiff crowd. Uh, Then you have the third group, which is where we were, where it's like, you know what, this is a new asset class. It's going to be worth millions. I'll I'll put, you know, I'll buy it at $5. You know, um, I'm happy with that at the risk reward there. And that's still true today. And uh, at 30,000, it's still dirt cheap compared to where it's going and but you still have people who are going to complain about it like a Liz Warren or somebody that oh my god I, I just can't believe that this thing is out there or you have people that are just not gonna spend the time to understand it the Peter Schiff still doesn't own it and then you have the folks that have put in a few hours of work and said hey you know this is worth millions of dollars I'm gonna buy it at 30 I'll buy it at 20 I'll buy it at 60 I'll buy it at a hundred thousand doesn't make any difference it's I, I understand the value proposition. I understand how it exists in the ecosystem of the world of fiat money, and I'm going to own it. So those are the three groups and it's cheaper at 30,000. It's cheaper at 100,000.
2: For me, my journey was a little bit different. I think, um, you know, Bitcoin changes you. You know, you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you. And it changed me, uh, you know, and, the, and it changed the network and it changed all the people around me and it changed itself. Like it was, it's always been itself, but we who were participating in Bitcoin didn't know. So early Bitcoin in 2011, 2012, um, you still had people like Mati Malmi, you still had people like Gavin Andreessen giving away, r- running faucets, giving away tens of thousands of Bitcoin to people for free. Now, had they known it was a store of value and that it would one day be $60,000, no way on earth would they have done that. Nevertheless, had they not done that, it probably would not have gotten to 60,000 within 10 years. So it's a it's just chicken and egg situation in, in terms of, or a quantum sort of event, because they had to do that in order to spread Bitcoin around. We, we had to, you know, have a global television show, you know, evangelizing all the world. And also like at that time, when we were just like a thousand people or 2000 people involved in Bitcoin, it was, Kind of magic internet money in my mind like it was just like oh you know it was more of a technology at that time we were in awe of the the core devs the people who knew how to you know code and and you know and work on bitcoin that was like who understood stuff and so you know when uh, and also the exchanges were totally as you mentioned mount gox blew up but there were other ones like bitcoinica there was intersango and they just like blew up or ran away with your money. So we were kind of used to just like, oh, you know, I have like 500 Bitcoin there. Oh, I thought I had an account there. I guess the website's gone. I don't know if I had an account. I don't remember. Like you you can't remember what happened to a lot of your Bitcoin because you weren't really tracking it. It wasn't like a store of value. You need to keep this. One day this is going to be worth millions and millions of dollars. Like you just thought, oh, I lost like 600 bucks. That sucks. But it was like 600 Bitcoin or something at the time. So. Uh, It was, and when you had to use that QT wallet and download the whole blockchain onto your uh, laptop and your laptops blew up and stuff like that. So, you know, it just was kind of still a mystery at that time, even the core devs, even the smartest people in the room. But as more and more people came in, more and more uh, conversation happened, more ideas started to percolate, uh, things got written down, blogs got said, Bitcoin Twitter emerged uh, and, and, you know, that whole network effect of people, of not just a 1,000 people, but 10,000, and then 100,000, and then a million looking at it, and then understanding what it was. Max used this, the masterpiece of Van Gogh. You know, I likened it before to, there was a, a true story of a Chimabue, which is a, um, an early Renaissance masterpiece, uh, art, master artist. And he has like t- 11 or 12 masterpieces still in existence. Well, this one woman who was like 90 something years old in France owned one of them and she didn't know. She had it for her whole life. She had it since childhood. It had been in her family, but she hung it over her stove for her entire 90 years. And then once uh, she took it to an auction house or whatever, like as she was aging, you know, getting ready to, pass on all of her inheritance they were like this is a Chimabue and it was worth 25 million dollars that it sold for so that was like us with early bitcoin we were like hey you know running faucets giving away tens of thousands spending it on things like iphones like which i did and stuff like that like we wouldn't have done that had we known what it was but had we known what it was nobody would have ever parted with all those tens of thousands of bitcoin so where would we be? you know this is a like Schrodinger's cat We'd be dead or would we be alive? Who knows?
0: Yeah, that, that's super fascinating. I never hear about you know the the early early days like that you know because I got a market like two years ago so that, that's fascinating to hear about like the early days. Um, over the last like I would say four or five months, I will say like in the short term as like a you know hardcore Bitcoin kind of evangelist, I have been a bit disappointed, and I'm not saying that this time won't come and that this isn't, you know, the case of what Bitcoin is, but I have been a bit disappointed to see the market not recognize Bitcoin as this geopolitical hedge or inflation hedge as inflation is running rampant. And to see kind of the Bitcoin get basketed in with these broader tech stocks. And I I think you'll agree with me that this is kind of a short term thing. And I also think it's also because the market doesn't fully understand what Bitcoin is yet. Um, what do you guys think about Bitcoin in the basket of just the broader macro environment? Uh, obviously, we've got the Fed, you know, it's quote unquote, you know, trying to, trying to tighten. They're saying, you know, it's talking very tough. We'll see how long their, their charade lasts. Um, but I guess, you know, wanted, wanted to hear your thoughts and just riff a little bit on, on macro and Bitcoin's kind of position in, in the broader market.
1: Well, the uh, the price up towards 70,000, I think, was telegraphing a lot of inflation to come. Right. So Bitcoin is a you know, markets are discounting mechanisms. And now that that inflation manifested and people are talking about it as front page news, you know, you, you, you buy in the rumor, sell in the news. Right. So you have a pullback now that you've got that and the news happened. Uh, it was, you know, leading up to that event that was not yet on people's radar. So now uh, the pullback is back to this level and it's building a a nice base. And before it makes that big assault to another another price range. I think this price range in this era in Bitcoin. I call the Michael Saylor era. So Michael Saylor came in roughly two years ago. He started buying at a 10,000. I think MicroStrategy started buying it at $20,000. they have got a cost basis of $30,700, uh, which is roughly this range, this price range, the Michael Saylor era, micro, MicroStrategy era. And, uh, but I think we're coming to the end of that, that era, and we're going to enter a new era. Uh, you're going to have the CBDCs come along from the central banks. That'll be paired with maybe a sovereign wealth fund, a trillion-dollar sovereign wealth fund, putting $100 billion into Bitcoin right so well that'll that'll be a new era and when that thing when that takes shape uh you know the bitcoin price can jump very quickly very fast into the six-figure range um you know i think back to my wall street days and uh peter lynch uh wrote some great books on stock markets he wrote one called one up on wall street it's a classic uh he talks about how the year's gain in a winner in a stock market, typically happens over a five to six day period, a very compressed period of time. You know, when you look back over the year and you said, oh, I own this stock, I made 20%. Well, it generally happened, that move happened over one week, Uh, maybe an earnings surprise or something like that. So, um, you know, you never know exactly when that week is gonna come, but if you're not in the market during that week, you will have missed that move. So Bitcoin from 30,000 to 300,000 can happen pretty quickly. Uh, I think right now also another wave that we're seeing is we're seeing the collapse of the third wave of major frauds in crypto with the VC money, the VC coins, the Web3 coins. This is the third major wave of fraud. Uh, it seems to be breaking up at this time with the Luna scam and uh, Sol, the Solana scam and all these, Ethereum is basically a scam. So all these scams are now kind of falling apart. This is the third wave that, since the beginning of Bitcoin. And that'll bring in now a new wave. And I think that new wave, Stacey talks about really the CBDCs as being the fourth major wave of central bank crypto fraud, right? it's no longer gonna be Andreessen and Horowitz doing crypto fraud. It'll be European Central Bank doing crypto fraud. You know, Christine Lagarde will be doing crypto fraud. Uh, and that'll be the, the fourth wave. And concurrent with that would be a Bitcoin price in the in the six figures. So um, these, you know, they kind of go together. I I, I don't think, you you know, there's no correlation. Bitcoin is not really correlated with anything. It temporarily might correlate with NASDAQ. It temporarily might correlate with commodities. uh, But ultimately, it doesn't correlate with anything. It's on its own vector and it's just heading to a much higher place. And any um, correlation in any short period of time is more coincidental. Uh, than it is fact-based or, or uh, fundamental-based. Uh, so I think that's where we're at.
2: But I think in a way, a lot of that sort of analysis is still fiat-based. I think what we're heading towards is hyper-Bitcoinization. So as we get there, I think, just like I said, the network of participants in Bitcoin alter what it reveals itself to be. In the early days, it was the hackers and the coders and the degenerates, you know, people buying uh, online drugs or porn or, you know, uh, gambling, things like that, that were illegal, you couldn't get a credit card to do it. WikiLeaks was an early, uh, you know, 2010, I believe it was, uh, Satoshi warned against like letting them, uh, w- or, or wanting them, you can't obviously stop them, but like stop uh, encouraging him to adopt uh, Bitcoin. And then, you know, then, the high-frequency traders and the hedge funds came in uh, because there was a massive like arbitrage opportunities they just saw that sitting there between these huge exchanges and you had to play that right and then they saw all the high-frequency traders saw bitmex and they saw that they could scalp all these uh you know noobs <laughs> sitting there like these small potato guys like playing with uh the you know se- setting their limit orders and stuff and they just like took all of those <laughs> and then we have when we get to hyper Bitcoinization, the, the moment is now, right? We're at the nation state level, we have El Salvador, we have President Bukele has adopted legal tender, uh, you know, Bitcoin is legal tender in El Salvador. But what came first? Like did did that move cause the US to freeze reserves on February 26, 2022? Everything has changed from that moment, just because people don't recognize it, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. What happened on February 26, 2022 is the US seized reserves The first time that has happened of a foreign nation so the dollars like they blew up the dollar they decided to (laughs) wipe it out as layer one money like it's no longer fungible it is no that's a you you need that to be money and now it's not like they froze reserves it's over so just because people haven't recognized that and they're still in a fiat mentality of like number go up you know which one am i gonna i need to like flip around with hex or or solana or avax or any of these uh, other other coins in order to buy more bitcoin and whatever that's just a mentality that is uh, is fiat what price is there to that what unconfiscatable permissionless wealth just like we were talking about masterpiece art there's no price literally on the mona lisa because how do you even price it that's the same thing, like where we're going with hyper-Bitcoinization, there's no price on that. How do you, in a world of a f- disintegrating fiat, in a world of a collapsing empire, and it's not you know, saying anything unique to America because all empires have done this before them, like they all take everything down with them. And if, if, their, if their dollar, if, if they can't sustain the exorbitant privilege and the cantillionaire effect for their own uh, elite, Then they're going to take the whole thing down clearly because that's what they've just done so you know this is a new era and i think it's hyper bitcoinization is here and there's no sort of way to value your life your sovereignty and unconfiscatable wealth
0: yeah i like that perspective a lot one thing you touched on was el salvador and you guys have been very active there and kind of have you know had your your boots on the ground there so I would love to just dive into, you know, moving on from any price related things, talking about what's going on there What have been some of the firsthand uh, things that you've you've noticed and positive impacts of uh, Bitcoin on the community there that that you've seen.
1: Well, you know, you don't change Bitcoin, Bitcoin changes you and the whole country is being transformed by Bitcoin and the ethos of Bitcoin and the aesthetic beauty of Bitcoin, the practicality of Bitcoin. The people on the ground are happy with this. They like the idea of having unconfiscatable wealth and people will come up to me all the time and say, Max, Max, I have $50 in Bitcoin. And it's the first time in their lives they've had unconfiscatable savings, unconfiscatable wealth, and they're building on it. They're adding to it. And uh, they're happy about it. And it gives you a sense of agency, a sense of pride. They know that their president has been instrumental in part of this whole revolution. And on the sovereign level, of course, the country is squaring off against the IMF and other world organizations, which is I think being applauded by everybody who sees the threat of these supranational world organizations being overreaching. And uh, that's becoming a, a greater problem on a daily basis. And they see what El Salvador is doing and they, they applaud it. And now that is spreading into the region and around, uh, around the world. And um, also it's amazing that, uh, you know, adjusted for the tourism dollar and the foreign direct investment money that's coming into El Salvador, the the current Bitcoin position of the country, which is um, they uh, is under what they paid for it. um, It's still if you adjust for the tourism and everything else, it's it's basically it's still a huge winner for them even though they're on paper they don't have any paper gains at the moment it's still a huge winner e- economically speaking the gdp is over 10% for the year it looks like it's going to bust 15 20% next year and and that's you know pretty much in due to bitcoin
2: right and you know look at the again look at the story of El Salvador the story for hundreds of years is of occupation, imperialism, slaughter of the indigenous people, um, neoliberalism, economic hitmen, mass homicides, uh, the gang wars, civil war, all of that stuff, the story has changed overnight like that. And when you go there and you talk to the people who are born and raised and their families have lived there for generations, They are still, they're like shell shocked. They're looking around like, who are all you people coming here? I can't believe this is, uh, people are coming here. We've, we have fled. We have left for our, my parents, my grandparents, my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, everybody seeks to flee to America, to somewhere else, because that is the only opportunity. And now that is changing. And I believe that's similar to what happened to Florence, In the Renaissance, the first Renaissance, I believe you'll see a Renaissance 2.0 in El Salvador. Who knows what form that will take? Because at that, you know, back in the Renaissance, you're coming out of a Dark Ages, and I think we're coming out of a Dark Ages now—a Dark Ages of fiat. And back then, the hard money that was the florin, the most perfect of the gold standards at that time, that that drew in more trade. More trade brought in more, um, you know, wealth to. Florence, which brought in people who wanted more freedom. So they were the freest people of all of the uh, city-states in what is now modern-day Italy, which drew in the artists, which drew in the, the you know, the, the cycle was just kept on feeding on itself until this greatness that we still talk about today. And I think you'll have the same thing with El Salvador. Uh, You know, one of the things that I've been doing there for the last few months is trying to do what I can to make sure that, you know, uh, know, until this is like totally embedded and Bitcoin is embedded and the president himself is definitely like complete Bitcoin maximalist, totally orange build. But as you know, all the shitcoiners have billions of dollars that they can print and they go there and they try to find an avenue to corrupt. Now, there's a lot of Latin Americans, there are many Latin Americans there who are drawn there. Uh, many Venezuelans, we were talking to a Venezuelan friend there who said like, when, when hyperinflation first hit under Maduro, what they saw in, in Venezuela was the arrival of every shit coin. So there was no just like, it was Bitcoin and all the shit coins and every person was met with this avalanche of, of shit because the, the shit was free. You know, Bitcoin you have to work for, it's harder to get. So uh, all these people were given free shit, but the shit all collapsed since then. So they're all like, they connect that to Bitcoin. So trying to avoid that sort of situation where people get um, conned or confused by the shit coins that are always, you know, they always present themselves as a new Bitcoin or that, you know, they, that's a classic con, right? You go for the best, you pretend you're gold, you know, when you had fool's gold, and the same thing with these shit coins. So that's what I've been doing there, and I think it's uh, worked quite well. And, you know, I, that's why we're ready after, after what, seven, eight months of just living there most of the time. Right now we're in uh, North Carolina, but most of the time we spend down there. And that's why we've started investing with El Zante Capital. Like, it's, I think it's ready. There's a lot of good stuff about to happen with the, the new laws that the president is introducing and the volcano bond, which will be coming forward. Soon, So I think, uh, you know, you're going to see the next boom up there very soon.
0: I, I really like that framework about the, the Bitcoin renaissance. I think it's super interesting. And I think people overlook the cultural impact of what can happen when you have a bedrock foundation of, of sound money. And I also like the way you kind of talked about I, th- I think the uh, one of the most like beautiful things about Bitcoin is the game theory of adoption is such that the countries that need it first adopt it first mm-hmm. and I think you know that that's kind of what we're starting to see pan out and on a similar note uh, can you guys explain for us what was this recent? It seemed like there was a meeting of uh, other south and central american central bankers maybe I'm, I'm wrong about who exactly it was but it was a group of central bankers in el salvador what was going on there and, and what was kind of the, the the you know meat and potatoes of, of that meeting
2: so those were uh, 32 central bankers and 12 financial authorities from developing nations around the world uh, they meet often you know, throughout the years and uh, these 44 nations and they chose to meet in El Salvador. Because financial inclusion is something that is important to them. That's one thing that most of us Bitcoin podcasters and stuff, we, we have the luxury. We all have, it's easy for us to get bank accounts, it's yeah. easy for us to sign up for Cash App or Venmo or all these uh, credit cards and stuff like that. but these countries don't have that they don't have access to banking services a lot to do with the us like the situation in el salvador why so many people are unbanked is not only do they have not much money but they don't want to those banks there don't want to get cut off from swift so you have one bad person there who has like 200 dollars in their bank account is it worth it to get cut off from swift No, it's the same thing across Africa and a lot of Latin America. It's just the the risk reward for them to be cut off from the global financial system is just too high. So when they heard about El Salvador and the experience of them, not only you know they had seventy percent of the population was unbanked, and now they're all banked, right? Because they could download the Chivo wallet or any other Bitcoin wallet and spend it at many government services and things like that. You know, we've been in Bitcoin, as you mentioned, since 2011, a dollar, you know, uh, we've been to every conference around the world, participated in Bitcoin for years, until I went to El Zante, which is a little village. Maybe there's like a 1,000 people that live there. And it's hyper-Bitcoinized. Like, it's the only place I've ever been that's totally, totally hyper-Bitcoinized. And on Lightning, that's thanks to uh, Nicholas Berti, I think, is the one that actually, you know, built on lightning he, he spent three years there with a vision that lightning could be the one that hyper bitcoinizes a population and it worked and you see it if you go there like until you experience it it's hard to explain that y- y- there's uh there's no friction at all and uh that's pretty amazing so uh yeah i think that's that's where the hopefully that model you know the as El Zonte dra- draws in so many tourists and it's always in the press and it's in the global media and it's covered. You know, that just that positive model of inspiration convinces other municipalities and villages and towns across El Salvador to do this for themselves because who doesn't want the tourist, you know, bitcoin or the visitors and who doesn't want happy positive people all around them?
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And I'd love to make the trip down there at, at some point to, to experience that. I think the last topic that we could talk about is uh, El Zante Capital. And if you guys could walk us through, when did you launch this? Uh, what's kind of the goal of, of El Zante?
1: Well, uh, we launched it uh, formally just uh, a few weeks ago, really. Um, and uh, it's something that uh, we came up with when we were in. El Salvador. And uh, we've have experience in the VC business. Now going back, we made our first Bitcoin venture capital investment back in 2013. And uh, we have several funds, Bitcoin Capital 1, 2, and 3, Heisenberg Capital. So these have made 15, 16 investments in Bitcoin companies over the years. We have six or seven unicorns that have come out of that. Uh, like Kraken, for example, we've got in at a $5 million valuation. I think they're, look and do 10 10 billion or so now so uh we have a pretty good track record in this space and picking winners i guess you could say so uh it seemed like this was a great place to set up a new fund so el zante of course is the surf town where bitcoin beach and hyper bitcoinization is taking place and we've already made a couple of investments and we're 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 looking to do I uh, think uh, cap out at ten million on this round on this fund, and um, the the theme is hyperbitcoinization.
2: Yeah, and you know because we're early investors in the space, and you know Max and I, Max puts it well. He always says like we bet on the jockey, not the horse. So we that's what we've always done with our investments. And in, like say Kraken, it was we we bet on Jesse Powell right so that was back in 2013 so that's who we bet on the same thing here is i think you know we 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 do have the connections to have some you know good investment opportunities like to be participate in the galloy round that is just closing so okay that's one thing but we're also interested in you know vc investing is risky right it's a it's not <laughs> like it they make it seem like everybody's a billionaire and it's just like a sure bet, right? But it's risky and we're, we want to take that risk on Salvadorans. Like we want to invest in Salvadoran companies and encourage uh, Salvadoran people to participate in this Bitcoin economy and hyper-Bitcoinization. They're the first nation to hyper-Bitcoinize. So they should enjoy that. They should be there for the ride. It shouldn't, uh, I mean, it it will be what it will be, but it, they should try to get on board. And we're hopefully going to be there to cultivate this, because I think El Salvador could be the center, like a uh, Florence of the new financial world, like this with their new securities laws coming, and they're, they're gonna be the center of all of this um, financial world built upon Bitcoin. So like, uh, not only are we investing in startups and entrepreneurs there, but we're bringing in, like, a lot of our time is spent convincing people like Jimmy Song to come there and educate Salvadoran coders to be able to code and program Bitcoin and build on Bitcoin so that the population itself is invested in this future that they're building right that their country is building that they're they're the they're the pioneers so let's let's get it on right this, this is what we're we're 100 totally in on el salvador and on president bukele
0: that's incredible and um, i'm really looking forward to seeing updates of what comes out of the project so uh, congrats on congrats on the launch over the last few weeks before we wrap up, is there any, I guess, uh, final words or any words of winst- wisdom that you want to leave the listeners with?
2: Uh, prepare for good times. You know, it, it, sometimes it's, it's difficult pe- for people to believe in good times, right? And, and get ready. This is the time of individual sovereignty. We've had thousands of years without individual sovereignty. It was like back to the stone ages, like when there were no governments and, and, you know, the only thing controlling you was like the woolly mammoth and you had to make sure to run faster than that thing. But now it's like individual sovereignty, total freedom. In, in El Salvador, President Bukele calls it a model of economic liberty. And, you know, the founding fathers of America did warn, like, it's like a republic if you can keep it. So you know, this is a mindset. You have to be prepared for freedom. You have to be par- prepared for liberty. A lot of people are afraid of it, but good times are coming, right? Renaissance 2.0 is here. And as I said, I believe we're exiting a fiat dark ages. And you could see that with all the opioid overdoses, the the increase in mortality, and especially with young people, that's a sign of bad times, right? That's not a That's not a healthy, vibrant, booming economy that's not a good uh, situation I think we're exiting that and we're heading to good times. so I think get ready
1: yep yep the only thing you have control over is yourself everything else is completely out of your control including Bitcoin and mastering yourself is a full-time job and uh, things can change very quickly you know the clouds disappear and it's sunny and uh, those are people who are prepared for it are going to jump in and take advantage and uh, those who are mired in self-doubt are, are going to be hesitant and they're going to miss it. Now in the case of El Salvador, the the clouds have already disappeared. They're already on on, on the on the on the one, so to speak <laughs> there. They're they're already moving in this incredibly interesting and and fascinating and and productive direction, and so that's why we're really going there. You know, that's why we're there is because we've always been kind of on the cutting edge of this industry, and um, so that's where it is right now. The bleeding edge of Bitcoin is in El Salvador at the moment, so that's where we have to be. You know, Max and Stacey have to always be at the very, very, very forefront of everything. So uh, that's that's what we're doing.
2: We were even the first Bitcoin couple. Now there's like a hundred of them. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you guys you guys are the ogs i there's now that that couple i like they do like the little video skits over at yeah, met yeah. them in miami so uh yeah i think that's a great place to, to end it thank you guys so much for your time and uh maybe we'll get you on in a, in a couple quarters or so to, to update us on uh, everything that you're up to so take care
1: thank, thank you, you.